Well, I have a question for you. Have you ever thought about your death? <laughs> there's, a, there's one. <laughs> have you ever thought about the way that you're going to die? I think for most of us, we steer away from that topic because we tend to value life more than we do death. But the truth of the matter is that the Lord Jesus Christ thought very regularly about his death because the pinnacle of his ministry would ultimately take place when he came to fulfill the purpose for which he came, which was to pay the penalty on the cross for the sins of the world. The Lord's omniscience allowed him to know everything that was going to take place in advance and how he was going to die. The scriptures recorded specifically and, and let us know about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and that the, the father would be pleased to crush his son for the iniquities, to pay that price, as I prayed at the beginning of the service, that we could never pay. And though we don't have the privilege of knowing how we will die, we know that God has ordained every single detail as it relates to the end of our lives as well. He's got it mapped out. In our study today, Mark records the fate of John the Baptist. And in doing so, he foreshadows the fate of Jesus and all 12 of the apostles, with the exception of one. How might this study sober you and I and prepare us for our fate? Has it ever crossed your mind that your faith in Christ could lead you to a similar fate of Christ? The title of our message is Embrace Your Fate. And let's see how our study in this passage can prepare you and I for the fate that God may have ordained for our lives. Our focus will be on Mark 6, verses 14 through 29. But for those that weren't with us last week, I'm going to start reading in verse 7 so that you gain an idea of this con the context of this passage, which is, is all one unit. Starting in verse 7, it says, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money belt, but to, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod had heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. 
A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to, be, to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. There are only two passages in the account of the Gospel of Mark that are not about Jesus or involving Jesus. Both of them involve John the Baptist. The first one we got to study back in Mark chapter 1 as John served as a forerunner to Christ. He was out in the wilderness preaching and preparing the way for the inauguration of Christ's ministry. The second account is found right here in Mark 6 where John will again serve as a forerunner for Christ but this time in death. The parallels between John's death and Jesus' death are actually very intriguing. Both of them were executed by political leaders. Both of them, uh, both of the political leaders feared uh, both of these men. And in the end, they give way to the social pressures for the sake of appeasing others. Today, we're going to witness Herod Antipas give in to the pressure of Herodias, his wife, and make a a concession to, to appease her. In uh, Jesus' case, it was Pilate who was being coerced by the angry crowd. And in the end, he appeases them by handing Christ over. Both John and Jesus die silently as victims like sheep being led to the slaughter. Both get arrested and treated like criminals and die as righteous and innocent victims. James Edwards says, John's martyrdom prefigures more than Jesus' crucifixion. It also exemplifies the consequences of following Jesus in a world of greed, decadence, power, and wealth. Mark sandwiches the brutal and moving account of the martyrdom of John the Baptist between the sending of the twelve and their return in order to oppress upon his readers the cost of discipleship. End quote. Yes, this account is about John the Baptist and what happened to him. But the purpose is pointing us to the ensuing fate of what's going to happen to the Lord and the 12 apostles. And Mark, led by the Holy Spirit, recognizes the fact that Jesus Christ and his discipleship, as he's growing these men forward, is actually preparing them for the same fate that he's going to experience at the end of his life. And this passage 
provides four principles drawn from the foreshadowed fate of Jesus and the apostles so that you and I are also sober-minded and prepared for our ministry fates. And the first principle that Mark draws out for us that the apostles would have to deal with is to face the political paranoia over Jesus. The 12 are on their first mission. And already verse 14 indicates that Herod has heard about what is taking place. They're preaching and they're pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they also have power over demons and illnesses that we talked about last week, which was authenticating their message, was enabling them to really have a great deal of influence on the people. And from Herod's perspective, it's one thing for a man to promote himself, but it's entirely different for a dozen men to be out preaching and pointing people to the same man, carrying the same message, authenticating it with the same power. This was like a fire burning out of control from a political perspective. Someone with a following who could influence people to this extent now posed a serious threat. And to understand this, we need to understand a little bit more about Herod. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, who was the king who was in place when Jesus Christ was born. And in a twist of irony, is also the king who uh, put to death all the infants, those who were two and under, right? In an attempt to destroy Christ. And when Herod the Great died, the Roman emperor basically divided his kingdom up into uh, four distinct parts. One quarter went to Herod Antipas, who wasn't really a king. He was actually a tetrarch, and a tetrarch actually means the ruler of a fourth part. And his pride, he even ordered his subjects to, to call him a king, even though he wasn't. Herod Antipas ruled from 4 AD to 39 AD, when he was banished to what is now France by the Roman emperor for demanding to be made a king in AD, uh, 39 AD. Jesus sums up the character of Herod Antipas best by calling, calling him a fox in Luke 13.32, which really reflect the cunning nature of who Antipas was. So it's at this point in time that the tetrarch, Antipas, was, who was hoping to be king someday, the last thing that he could afford was to have an uprising take place in his jurisdiction, which Galilee fell into. This provides a, a backdrop to his political paranoia and superstition in these opening verses when he thinks that somehow John the Baptist has been reincarnated and brought back on the scene and he's going to thwart his, his political purpose and, and progress, his agenda. Both Herod and those closest to him were speculating. And I imagine because of what took place that we'll see later in the story of him putting John the Baptist to death, there was a guilt-ridden conscience Big time. So he's thinking, this has to be John the Baptist, even though other people were much like the disciples saying, it's Elijah or one of the prophets. The takeaway and the principle that the apostles would need to note is that they too would, excuse me, face political unrest and paranoia when it comes to representing Christ. 
Much more is going to be said about paranoia and persecution under our third and fourth points. But for now, you and I must acknowledge that we may face a similar challenge. Believers have always made political leaders paranoid, and we see this regularly. We're seeing this now, even in the midst of the presidential election. There, there's a reason that, um, you, you, anyone else surprised how many politicians all of a sudden um, are converts to Christ when, when the election year rolls around? Even Donald Trump, as of late, has, has um, apparently made a, a, a commitment, right, to, to the Lord after reading 2 Corinthians, I believe. No, inside joke. Listen, my, 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 my hope is for Donald Trump to be born again. My hope is that he would be saved. My hope is that he would repent. But the reality is there's a, a hidden agenda, most likely, that's behind it. And the question remains, what is it about Jesus and his followers that makes political leaders so paranoid? And the reality is that political leaders, just like everyone else, recognize the fact that because of the way Christians live and because of what they believe, their sphere of influence impacts the world in which we live. Our faith should always bear witness to truth and to righteousness. Our faith always values and puts a premium on life that we've been given by God to fulfill his purposes and to worship him and to accomplish his plan. And in many governments and political arenas, corruption, deception, lying, embezzlement, injustice, and countless other things are woven into the fabric of Government, it's commonplace. And Christians cannot and should not stand for any of those things as we testify of God's grace in our life, as he positions us out in the world to live as lights and testimonies in the darkness. Ephesians 5, 9, and 11 says, it says, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to please, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. That's, that's what we're called to do as we reflect the light of Christ in the workplace, in the marketplace, in government, wherever it is that God has called us to, to work. Add to the fact that those who are in spiritual darkness can't comprehend the light. It just adds to the effect of their paranoia. It makes people of the world nervous when Christians will not go with the flow, so to speak, as it relates to, to the things that they do from a corruption standpoint. And many of you have experienced this in, in your workplace. You have. You've, you, you've con confronted this reality as you coworkers steal from the company all the time, take supplies and, 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 and things that don't belong to them. Here's one, are you going to cheat on your taxes this year? Hi, you know, it, it's okay the, it, you know, for, for us to go ahead and file just a few false claims for the business so we don't have to qu pay Uncle Sam quite everything that's due to him. Is that okay on your watch? Or do you take a stand and let your light shine 
And our second principle will provide even more insight. Like John the Baptist, like Jesus, the apostles would also boldly speak the message of repentance and faith. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says, For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on an account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now the background on Herodias here is very significant as well. And in, embedded in the Greek is this, this pattern of John going to him. And it even, it even provides an indication that it was done privately. That he went to Herod to say, you can't do this, man. You can't do this. And we need to understand Herodias. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas' father, had five wives. And he had sons and daughters with each of those wives. And Herod Antipas was half-brothers with Herod Philip. Okay, you tracking with me so far? Herod Philip married one of his other half-brothers' daughters, his half-niece. Okay? So this Herodias is the half-niece of both Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. Tracking with me so far? Okay. Uh, Herod the Great disowns, ends up disowning Herod Philip. And he moves to Rome. And Herod Antipas actually stayed in touch with his half-brother. And he was visiting in Rome one time when he saw Herodias again and he fell in love with her. And she decides that she's going to divorce uh, Herod Philip, and now marry Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, who was also married at the time, conveniently divorced his wife. And then they married. And they came together and they had a daughter by the name of Salome, who's the one who dances in the account that we're studying today. She was dancing for her stepfather and double half-uncle for his birthday. <laughs> Now, it, Jerry Springer didn't exist during this point in time, but let me just say that if it did, if it did, this would be like a two-week episode, okay? The, all the talk shows would be obsessed with, with such a story. But what we need to see here is John the Baptist's faithfulness and boldness to preach repentance to Herod Antipas. The phrase in verse 18, had been saying, suggests repeated action. And it's identical to the verb and form used to describe Herod in verse 16 when it says he kept on saying Jesus was John the Baptist reincarnated. It's the exact same verb and the exact same form. John the Baptist kept on saying to Herod, you can't do this, man. You can't do this. Every time Herod was around, it appears that John's preaching on repentance challenged Herod's adultery, and incest, both of which were sins according to God's law. And John's ongoing message of repentance and concern for Herod upsets him. And according to verse 19, it left him perplexed. But it seems that Herodias was even more upset, and according to verse 17, so much so that she wanted him dead. And in an effort to appease her and out of fear of John's testimony of righteousness, 
It appears that Herod reached a concession just by placing him into prison. I'm not going to kill the guy, but I got to, my, my wife is greatly upset. I'm at least going to throw him into prison. And that's what he does, falsely throws him into prison. But I want to take a moment here to, again, unpack the impact that John the Baptist's faithfulness to share the message of repentance, how it impacted Herod. He was preaching the word. And John was holding up a mirror of God's righteousness for Herod to see and to reflect upon. Question, was, was John the Baptist holding up a reflection of his righteousness? No. He was holding up a mirror. He was holding up a mirror. He was trying to get Herod to see and to look in the mirror of God's standard and God's righteousness and to see with clarity that what he was not doing, and he already knew inside the conscience. We had a chance to talk about this just even in care group. Many of you did this week, just even the, 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 the law that's inscribed on the heart of the unbeliever. And the mirror was right there. And John the Baptist was faithfully holding it up for Herod to see. And this is how the mirror of God's word works. And this is how the mirror of the gospel functions as we exalt the holiness of God in our lives. It helps people see that everyone sins. Everyone falls short. And only in Christ is God's perfect righteousness fulfilled and made available. And the Bible you know, the expression, it's, it's true that when we're out in the workplace, in our schools, in the places, we might be the only Bible that people see. You've heard that before? And it's true. It's a reflection of the word. Yet without Christ, a person's life is shattered. It's broken. It cannot give glory to God. And the best efforts to fulfill the law through human effort can never work by divine design. We're broken. Identical mirror. Designed for a purpose, to glorify God. And if I were to have any person come up here and ask you, I want you to go ahead and put this back together so it looks exactly like this. You could give it your best shot. And you know what's going to happen? You will cut up your hands. Might even bleed to death. It's a good picture of works righteousness, trying to do what only God can do. And when this mirror broke, there's even, look at that, there's even fine details down in the specks and, and the dust. It's impossible. It's impossible. Only through the work of salvation, only through the redemptive work of the gospel, can God take that which is shattered, that which is broken, and put it back together again so that it can function according to his purpose. And I love how this is just reflecting the light. Because that's what we're called to do as believers. And this is why the commands of scripture are so important in the New Testament for the believer. Why? Because that is how we shine the light. As God works in us and through us, 
we reflect the reality. We are, we are pointing the world to the word of God. We are pointing the world to the gospel. It's the only way that God receives glory. And John the Baptist was pointing Herod towards repentance and faith in the Messiah who had officially arrived who John the Baptist had already baptized at this point. And it's intriguing to think about whether John may have had any conversations with Herod to say, I know the Messiah is on the scene, and Scripture doesn't indicate this. What it does tell us is that Herod enjoyed listening to John's teaching previously. But when it confronted his heart about his adultery, when it confronted his heart about his incest-infected marriage that got a little too close, started to step on the toes of Herod and Herodias, started convicting, right? Started offending. See, it's easy to receive the word, isn't it? When, when it's endorsing the, 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 our obedience and the righteous standard that we're already following, right? Isn't it? When we, we, can, we're, we're, we celebrate that. But when all of a sudden, when the truth of the scripture confronts our own heart and says, you, you are not honoring the Lord, all of a sudden it's like, bam! And Romans 2.4 lets us know that it's God's kindness that has led us to repentance that deals with it, that we don't have a hardened heart like the world. We're not going to punch again it and say, get that out of my face. You can take that message with you, because that's what Herod and Herodias did. And so the message wouldn't reach him anymore. He just went ahead and just had him locked up in prison. But as it relates to our sensitivity, right? As we're around other believers who maybe can shine the light. When we're, maybe we're not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? And we're around another believer and they, they provide a testimony of the very thing that we should be doing. They, they serve, there's an internal testimony of the church as well. Well, what would be the result of John's fidelity to the message of repentance? This takes us to the third principle drawn from the foreshadowed fate of Jesus and the apostles, so that you and I are sober-minded and prepared for our ministry fates. John, Jesus, and the apostles willingly suffered persecution for the truth. Look at verses 19 and 20. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. It was up to her. He'd already be taken care of. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was righteous and holy, a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. And again, he didn't struggle with the truths that weren't targeted. Or if he felt like, you know, he was, he was okay in this regard, it was when it says that John faithfully went to him and told him about his marriage, and this was not right. Well, let the grudge game begin, right? And it starts with Herodias, and Herod also developed a, a grudge against John, and this word can also be translated hostile toward or had a, a quarrel against. D. Edmund Hebert says this is an idiomatic expression which literally, literally rendered means was having it in for him. 
Like our English expression, it denotes the feelings of animosity and hatred which Herodias nursed in her heart against John. End quote. T.W. Manson added this, quote, Herodias felt that the only place her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist, end quote. It appears that John's message of repentance after Herodias' second episode of incest and now adultery amplified an even greater hatred towards John. And it was so bad, she just wanted him dead. And ironically, this is how the story progresses. Herod, in the end, postponed John's death by putting him unjustly into prison. And though it appears that he's more passive, he's actually, he's got a grudge that's, that's in, in the Greek, these, these, he's perplexed and he used to listen. They're, they're in the imperfect. And what that means is that they're past completed actions with continuing results. And his perplexion, his difficulty with John is continuing to grow and fester. And then you have a wife at home who's in your ear saying, I can't believe that John the Baptist would tell you that. How dare he say that about our marriage? So what was going on? It was active grudge. And just a word of application before we move on. We will also have to endure grudges from unbelievers. And though we may not get thrown into a physical prison, there are other forms of prison and isolation that people will throw us into. Unbelieving coworkers may no longer invite you to come along and attend happy hour with them and the rest of the group because you're not willing to go out and and get drunk. You're not willing to go to the same places that they're going to go. Unbelieving friends may isolate you when you don't engage in gossip and you're unwilling to talk critically about other people in the same way that they are. There are many other prisons to be thrown into socially, emotionally, even financially. Sometimes the grudge can even turn into a full-fledged, life-threatening personal attack. And this is what happened to John starting in verse 21. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and the military leaders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. He swore to her. Literally, he made an oath to her. These were, these, this was a strong, strong Uh, response to her. Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you. Up to half my kingdom. This was a king putting his word right out there in the open for everyone. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And you can only imagine Herodias' patience waiting at the right time to pull the trigger. She endured, she endured, she endured. Now, give me the head of John the Baptist. And immediately, this is is a full-fledged personal attack. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked him, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Party's going on. And that's fun and games up to that point. 
It's his birthday. It's, it's celebration. And all of a sudden she says, I want you to kill somebody for me. I want you to give me John the Baptist's head. And they knew who John the Baptist was. And you can picture the music stopping right there for a moment. And the entire tone of the festivities changing right there. The king's response. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinners, dinner guests, his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. The time came for Herod to make a decision. He was either going to have to stand up to Herodias and let Salome know that the, the, the request that you're making is absurd and there's absolutely no way. You guys know that's not what I meant when I was talking about it. This is a celebration. Or he could sear his own conscience and follow through with his request, their request. And that, we know, is how the story ends. But I don't want to talk about what Herod didn't do. I want to talk about what John the Baptist didn't do. John the Baptist, who was in prison, right? We don't have any record of, of John breaking. There's no indication that he conceded. He stood firm. He endured prison. He faced the music. We don't read about him saying, you know what, Herod, I'm so sorry. You know, I was just trying to, trying to help you out. And Herodias, I, if I offended you, um, please, can we just bury the hatchet <laughs> before it cuts my head off. Can, you know, can we, can we just do that? Can we just help a brother out? I mean, really, really, I didn't mean it. No. What an example of faith and courage. He persevered to the end. And I'll just share with you, a personal attack isn't as far from you and I as we might think. Did you think for a moment that the, the Christian uh, bakeries, when um, the whole SCOTUS thing was going on, did you think for a moment that they ever anticipated when they refused to bake uh, wedding cakes for gay marriages, celebrating gay marriages? You think they ever anticipated bricks coming flying through their window? Personal death threats to their lives as well? Seems like it would be just a little easier to bake the cake. Right? They did not concede. They stood firm. They glorified the Lord. And some of them, it cost them their livelihood. And there are those in this room that have also were familiar with just what's taking place with Christians and, and Muslims. And there's been dozens of of men who have had their heads, just like John the Baptist, served on a platter. In Egypt, in Syria, in Pakistan, it's happening. ISIS is doing it. And they endured the attacks, and they did not revile in return, and they followed the example of John, Jesus, and the apostles. And I still had the picture of the mind of the, at least the video that I saw online with the guys that were dressed in orange when they literally cut off their heads. They, they, they weren't, they, they did not revile. 
They were not fighting, kicking. And I just thought, wow, that is the grace of God for those men to endure and, and, and the testimony that they left behind for us to witness. It was Joshua Lee who was here last week, such a dear brother. We're excited just as elders, just to see how the Lord's going to continue to use him. And I know there's many in our church that appreciate his ministry in Malaysia. And he was talking about one of the ethnic groups there, the Malay. You'll recall those who were with the presentation, but for those who weren't here, he's a native Malaysian. And he was talking about the Malay who are 100%, um, predominantly 100% Muslim. And he was saying that you cannot witness to them without your life being threatened. And so what is a Christian to do? Is it just their fate? They ended up Muslim? It's just the way the, the cards fell. They're on their way to hell. It's just the way it is. God's sovereign plan, just the way that it's going to have to be. Or are there going to be people who are willing to risk it all for the sake of their soul to share the gospel with them and endure the same persecution for the sake of the gospel? I believe we know the answer to this question, and it's very sobering. And this is the faith that you and I and every Christian is called to embrace if the Lord wills. A faith that must face the political paranoia over Jesus, boldly speak the message of faith and repentance, willingly suffer persecution for the truth, and a fourth principle that may also be God's will. Be prepared to die for the truth if the Lord wills. Verses 27 and 29 share this. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back John's head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And John's disciples heard about this. They came, they took his body and laid it in the tomb. And John the Baptist was faithful in life, and he was faithful unto death. And I can't imagine even what Herod or Herodias felt in that moment. Something tells me the tone of the party never, ever recovered. The weight of their sin was still upon them, and now the one person who encouraged them to turn to the Lord in faith was gone. Perhaps Herod would be consumed with guilt and repent at a later point. It's not what the scriptures indicate. In Luke 23, 6 through 11, several months later, the Lord Jesus Christ would appear before Herod Antipas, the final mention of Herod, by the way, in the word of God. When Jesus appears before him, all Herod wants to see is Jesus perform a miracle. Entertain me. Do something miraculous. No mention of John, no mention of contrition. Jesus refused even to speak to Herod. God, it appears, was finished with him. And there would be no more calls for him to repent that are recorded in the scripture. Herod's conscience is so scarred 
And he still has no compassion for another falsely accused man who's right there in his presence, just like John, who he was responsible for. He and his men mock Jesus. They adorn him in a king's robe, and they send him on his way. And thus ends the story of Herod Antipas. His only legacy was being responsible for John the Baptist's death, who the Lord Jesus Christ referred to the one who was no greater man has ever lived, right? The one who built the bridge and the one who would introduce Christ from the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament who would baptize Jesus. That's his legacy. He killed John the Baptist. But again, all this foreshadows the fate of Jesus and all the apostles but one. You guys may remember the series that we did that we covered uh, back several months ago on 12 uh, hand-picked men. You can actually go read uh, or listen um, to the accounts of how those men lived and how the Lord grew them faithfully. It's very encouraging. But Peter was crucified in Rome under Emperor Nero Augustus Caesar. James, the brother of John, according to Clement of Alexandria, was brought forth before the judgment seat because he was falsely accused of a crime. James preached the gospel to the man who was paid to falsely accuse him, who repented on the spot and gave his life to Christ before both men were beheaded by the sword. Andrew died in Achaia in southern Greece by crucifixion. Extra-biblical history says he led the wife of a Roman governor to Christ. The governor tried to get his wife to deny Christ, but she would not. Infuriated, he threatened to kill Andrew if she would not reject her Christianity. She refused, so he sentenced Andrew to death. You guys know he was, he was put on a saltire. It's the uh, St. Andrew's cross. He was not nailed to it, but he was strapped to it, and he hung for three days before he finally suffered and died. Philip had his head tied to a pillar and was stoned to death. Nathaniel, while in greater Armenia in the capital city, witnessed to the king's brother whose wife and three children were converted to Christ. The king threatened him with death because of his brother's conversion, and be, before and because he was upsetting the worship of other gods in this country, he ordered Nathanael to quit preaching Christ and to sacrifice to his gods. When Nathanael refused, the king ordered that Nathanael be tortured, beaten with rods before being suspended, inverted on a cross, and filleted alive. Matthew Levi ministered in Ethiopia. Ethiopian king Aglipus was initially supportive of Christians. His successor, King Hydekis, an unbelieving king persecuted Matthew, eventually had him apprehended. King Hydekus had Matthew's hands and feet nailed to the ground before having him beheaded in Nadavar, the capital of Ethiopia. Thomas preached to Parthia, India, and Ethiopia before he was martyred in Kalamina. James the Last, tradition says that the Jewish high priest Ananias summoned James to be questioned before they challenged him to deny the deity of Christ. He refused. They forced him to renounce the power of the resurrection. And an angry crowd started to stone him and threw him off the temple portico, which only broke his legs before somebody came along with a club and clubbed him to death. Thaddeus preached the gospel, made disciples, Syria, Arabia, ironically, Mesopotamia, as far as Edessa, all before he was beaten to death by idolatrous priests who were losing their sphere of influence as a result of his faithful ministry to exalt Christ in the gospel. 
Finally, Simon the Zealot, his ministry came to an end when he met opposition in Syria where a certain governor had him crucified. And all of these faiths are so sobering, aren't they? They're so very sobering, and they should be. But let me help you see the hope in them that when they took their last breath, where did they go? Who were they with? What had consumed their hearts? What had consumed their lives? What was more important to them to be with than anything in this world? The Lord Jesus Christ. And they, they were immediately in his presence. He had already told them he was going to prepare a place for them. And where he was, they would soon also be. And soon enough, they were. Yes, they were. It's powerful. Only the Apostle John, the brother of James, lived to an old age because it appears that the Lord allowed him to live long enough to close the canon of Scripture. And I think it's appropriate that we close this message with a verse that the Holy Spirit led the Apostle John to record in one of his last epistles. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It had to have been surreal for the Apostle John to record those words as the last apostle standing. It had to be surreal. May we also faithfully honor the principles from this very sobering passage as we embrace the fate that awaits us. And we may not be martyred. Maybe a consequence of sin that we die a, a death, we could die immediately in a, in a car accident, right? We know that. But we want to be prepared. And this sobering passage is one of those things for us to just really breathe in. And I want to let you know, as the apostles come back from their mission next week, there's a very encouraging message for us to hear about the report of what's taken place. So, heavy message this week. Greatly encouraging, encouraging message for us next week. Please pray with me.